Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. You ready? I was born ready. Welcome to Advisory Opinions. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, and we are live at the University of Alabama Law School with an exciting continuation of this podcast being Alabama-centric as it was in the last episode. It will continue with a slightly different Alabama flavor. I have three guests with me at the podcast today. We have Stephen Boyd, Jody Hunt, and Prim Escalona. They are all Alabamians, Alabamans, whatever y'all call yourselves down here. We're going to talk career, family, law, and we'll finally settle the debate over whether to go to law school that David and I have been having, you'll note that David is not here for this podcast. So I think we all know who's going to win this one. Um, Per usual, we'll hold our normal podcast and we'll have some questions at the end. Before we jump into our panelists, though, some interesting updates on our last Alabama podcast. If you remember, the Alabama Supreme Court uh, ruled in a way that put IVF in question in the state, in vitro fertilization. The University of Alabama Birmingham, which is one of the largest, if not the largest medical providers in Birmingham, certainly, uh, said that it was putting all IVF procedures on hold following that decision. Uh, So that was very expected. And in the last podcast, I mentioned that while... I hated the policy outcome of this decision. It could actually be proof of the system working if uh, the state Supreme Court says, here's how we read the law the best we can. But then the legislature steps in and is like, here's what the law is. Here's what the policy should be moving forward. Well, as of now, there has been a bill filed uh, in the Alabama state legislature, which is in session for another few weeks. And I talked to a political expert in Alabama who tells me that this actually does have real legs. It's by uh, chairman of one of the committees. He's a Republican. It's a short bill that will basically just say IVF is protected in the state of Alabama. If that happens, it will actually be proof of the concept of reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone and perhaps a model for the U.S. Congress to step in and, you know, do stuff when they don't like what the U.S. Supreme Court says instead of vilifying the U.S. Supreme Court on cable news and continuing to not do their jobs. Um, So that's an exciting update. We'll definitely keep you up to date on how that bill progresses. In the meantime, I think the smartest, uh, or rather the least smart thing that could happen is for any of the parties involved to try to appeal this to the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court. I already talked about how there weren't a lot of federal options that were particularly viable coming out of the Alabama Supreme Court decision. But also... If you leave the door open to the possibility that the U.S. Supreme Court can change this, fix this, reverse this, it gives the legislature an out to say, well, we'll just wait and see what the U.S. Supreme Court does before we have to step in and do anything about this. I think it would be very dumb 
put the pressure on the legislature, keep the pressure on the legislature. It doesn't actually count as reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone if you like pull the truck up with the wolves, but keep the gates locked and just let the wolves look at Yellowstone. So we'll see how this goes, but it makes it all the more fun to be in Alabama this week. Very Alabama-y. So panelists, with that, um, I thought I'd explain a little how I know each of you. Stephen Boyd here was the Assistant Attorney General at the Department of Justice for Legislative Affairs. And in many ways, you were my counterpart. I did public affairs, meaning the media, and you did legislative affairs, meaning Congress. Our offices were both on the first floor, and I know exactly how long it takes to run from my office (laughs) to your office at full sprint. Also, at one point, my necklace broke halfway in between our offices, and it was like a bead necklace, and I had to go find every bead on these marble, huge, wide marble hallways. Um, It took like an hour. It was very difficult. Uh, So we'll talk about what, how you got there and what you did after in a little bit, but you were like my guy in the foxhole there for my entire time at the Department of Justice. And you flew down to Birmingham with me today and we drove, you gave me a wonderful tour of the Vulcan. There's a dude in Birmingham, if you haven't been, it's a giant statue of a Vulcan, which I didn't know was a thing. Um, I thought that was maybe from the Marvel books or something. And um, his buttocks are exposed when you look at his behind. Um, and that's really interesting in that's Birmingham. Your, that's your takeaway from the whole That thing. was my takeaway. That's the biggest thing. Uh, next up. <laughs> All right, Jody, we're coming to you next. Jody Hunt was the chief of staff for Jeff Sessions at the Department of Justice and the assistant attorney general for the civil division. Uh, Jody was also very much in the foxhole, especially as chief of staff. And uh, I think I talked to you every single day, if not hour, in, in most of those days. And surrounded by Alabama accents, between you and Jeff Sessions, I understood a good 20% of what was being said <laughs> at any given point. Your daughter goes here to yeah. the University of Alabama Law School, even though you are an Auburn family which the only way I can relate is in Texas, we have UT families and A&M families. And like, it doesn't even matter if you went to the school, you're still, your family has certain loyalties. Um, and I can't imagine an A&M dad having a daughter at the University of Texas. So I'm sorry. Um, you know, it's lovely that you still speak to her. I think that's really big of you. <laughs> um, next up, Prim. Prim, you were in the Office of Legislative Affairs with Stephen Boyd, but then just spun right off and became the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. And you're running, you know, a big office in all these cases, the criminal docket, the civil docket. I mean, y'all do bankruptcy? Yeah, also bankruptcy. Um, So, and you're still at the Department of Justice, which is also a fascinating little piece of this. So we'll get to all of that. But first, I want each of you to sort of walk through the arc of your careers, starting from law school, how you end up at the Department of Justice and what you then went on to do after. Stephen, starting with you. Well, thanks. uh, Thanks for the crowd. Great turnout tonight. So thanks for being here. Um, I had the really good uh, series of good fortunes uh, some of which I think was a result of hard work and maybe some skill, but a lot of it was just being in the right place and building the re- relationships with the right people. Um, and my, my path is unusual and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, but, um, 
it's been wonderful for me. And it started here at school. Uh, and when I graduated from here, uh, when I, when I, the first day that I came to school, I, like most people, uh, assumed that I would pursue a uh, fairly traditional path in, in law practice. And for me, uh, that was August of 01, uh, probably started orientation mid- mid-month. And within a few weeks, just down the hallway, actually, um, we watched on TV as September 11th happened. And for me personally, that was a significant change in kind of what I wanted to do. So I left here, uh, graduated, and then went straight to Washington. Had a great fortune to get a very low-paying, low-level job with Jeff Sessions. Uh, emphasis on low-paying. Um, and I essentially wrote the mail for six, six weeks. Uh, six months, I should say. Uh, and you know, over time, was given more and more responsibility in the office and moved up and got involved in some different things and started working in communications. Uh, and then I was on the Judiciary Committee for a little while when he was the uh, senior Republican on the committee. And we had uh, Sotomayor and Kagan nomination hearings while we were there. Um, and one thing led to another. I went to work for a uh, very, at the time, very young uh, new member of the House of Representatives, uh, Martha Roby, whose dad is Joel Dabina, which some people in this room probably know, and was there for six years or so. When uh, then Senator Sessions and a nominee Sessions called and, and, and we talked, and he was about to go through a confirmation hearing in the Senate to be Attorney General. And that sort of reintroduced me back into that orbit. And that's where I met Sarah the first time. And that led to an opportunity to be nominated um, by the president to serve as the Assistant Attorney General, Senate confirmation uh, for the first part of 2017. And uh, that's where, in that period, which we can talk about, re-acquainted re, uh, with Prim uh, there at the department and had about four, three and a half years of serving in that capacity. And the job there is really to protect the department, protect the litigators and the prosecutors and the investigators from political interference while also uh, providing to the Congress the sort of access and information and oversight that they are legitimately entitled to. So it's a balancing act in a lot of ways. Uh, and after that uh, wrapped up, uh, I went to serve as chief of staff for Tommy Tuberville from the other school uh, in, in the Senate uh, for two years. And then following that, uh, started uh, joined a, a small consulting firm uh, based in Huntsville. And we do a lot of work in Washington, helping uh, aerospace and defense and law enforcement firms work with the government. Is that and called lobbying? There is some lobbying. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Small Talking consulting about. firm. Like it's not McKinsey, like... <laughs> Tiki. Got it. Cool, yeah. cool. But what but an interesting point about that, and I think it's something I would I would definitely just reinforce is my partner, uh one of my partners in that firm is a guy I went to law school here with. And there's no way back in you know 20 years ago we ever would have thought that would have happened. But uh it do, it did. And and the theme between all these things is uh as you move through your career, whether it's something sort of untraditional like mine or a more traditional law practice or you go clerk or whatever. The people you meet and the relationships that you make and the way you go about your business on a day-to-day basis follow you forever and open doors down the road that you would not imagine uh, would, would happen. And I'm lucky to uh, everyone here uh, definitely uh, falls into that bucket. 
and uh, I'm grateful for it. All right, Jody. All right, so you got I a am, longer distance to cover. Yes, <laughs> her point is that I'm really old, so <laughs> the career path is different and longer. I'm really happy to be here, really, with f- friends who I worked closely with at DOJ, and when I say we work closely together, it was truly, you know, in the trenches on a lot of things working with these guys. So that's fun and great to be here because, of course, my daughter's here at Alabama Law. So uh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So my path is was a little bit different than the one that Stephen laid out there. I had never planned to go to law school. I got a master's degree in international affairs and was thinking about doing foreign service uh, or maybe teaching. And after I got my master's degree, like, well, everybody wants a PhD to teach. And so even if you can teach with a master's, I'm not going to, you know, be, I'm not going to be highly sought after in the job market. And when I was trying to figure out what to do, somebody said to me, why don't you go to law school? Because it opens a lot of doors for you. We were just talking about this. Sarah will have some views on this issue, but uh, that's actually what made it motivated me to go to law school is that it would open doors for me. They said, you can still do foreign service. If you decide to do that, you could still teach or you could do a host of other things. And that made sense to me at the time. And so uh, I went off to law school, went to Columbia. Um, I have this accent because uh, I've spent many years, formative years in Alabama in a rural town in Northeast Alabama, Boaz. Uh, my parents were missionaries, so I grew up overseas. But when we came back to the States, we lived in Boaz and I had high school there. I went to undergraduate school in Birmingham at Samford University and then off to Columbia to law school. And after law school, because of my interest in, I clerked for, by the way, in the Northern District of Alabama for a federal judge, James Hancock in the Northern District. And I went off to work at a law firm, a New York-based firm in the D.C. office. And I chose that because that office was a small office, but did a lot of work in international claims and arbitration. And I knew I didn't want to do the transactional side. And I'm trying to combine my interest in international, you know, international affairs with litigation. There's not a lot of ways to do that. So this you know, White & Case was the firm I went to. The D.C. office at the time had 21 attorneys if you count all of us, the partners and associates, and did a lot of that international claims work. And so it was an opportunity to sort of, you know, fit something that I was interested in. And I spent years there uh, where I met my uh, now wife, and um, and she was in graduate school. And after graduate school, got her uh, residency in Atlanta. So we picked up and left for her. I left my job in D.C. to move to Atlanta for her residency. And I had to sort of change course in what I was doing practicing law because there wasn't a lot of international claims and arbitration work out of Atlanta. So I joined uh, King and Spalding there and did um, a lot of product liability and some commercial litigation, King and Spalding. And um, after I was there for a while, I, I had I've had this nagging sense that I wanted to be in public service for a long time. It hadn't sort of been an opportunity for me before uh, moving to Atlanta just because I was at that point, I thought early in my career and then moved to Atlanta. But at this point we had our twin sons were born and um, my wife was from Maryland and you know, we didn't have any family in Atlanta, even though we really liked living there. I actually answered an ad in the, what was then the legal times 
for a trial attorney position at the Department of Justice in the federal programs branch of the civil division. I had no clue what that was. I called a partner who, uh, with whom I had worked at White and Case in D.C. who had been at DOJ. And I said, what do you know about this office? She said, it's a fantastic office. You got to go there. So I applied. I, we picked up and left Atlanta, moved back to uh, Washington, D.C., and I joined the Department of Justice as a trial attorney. And then a lot of times it's, you know, know, where you are and who you know at the time and things happen in a way that sometimes you don't reach out for. And um, uh, one day there was a change in administration. So I joined the Department of Justice in the Clinton administration, the end of the Clinton administration. I was in a career position, not a political position. And then um, there was the the Bush-Gore administration. election battle and and the new administration came in. And one day, one Sunday afternoon, I'm sitting at home and I got a cold call from somebody who was on the DOJ transition for the Bush administration said, I heard about you from uh, a law partner at my law firm. And it happened that this law partner, she was a great friend of mine in law school. And she was a uh, now a managing partner of Latham and Watkins in Chicago, and at the time had headed up all of their associate programs, and he was an associate, and she saw that he was going to DOJ transition, and she said, you got to look up my friend Jody Hunt, who's at DOJ. So he he cold called me uh, uh, literally on a Sunday afternoon and asked me all these questions, and the next thing I know, they requested a detail for me to come over and assist with transition. And then while I was sitting in transition, the job, the director job in my office where I came from was op- came open and I applied for it. Um, and because I was known to people um, for my work on the detail, um, I was selected for that. And so I became a director of the federal programs branch of the civil division. It's a career position. And I held that position for 15 years. Loved the job. It's a great job. And then one day, wholly unexpectedly, I got a cold call in um, early February of 2017. I'll never forget it. I had a group of attorneys coming into my office. I was scheduling a call. We were getting ready to defend the first travel ban um, that had been put in place already at the beginning of the Trump administration. Our office was responsible for handling all of the high profile uh, challenges to federal programs and constitutional challenges. And so I was gathering the attorneys in my office to have a call with DHS. And I got this phone call on uh, number showed up on my screen. I didn't know it. I knew it was an Alabama number, but I didn't know who it was. So I didn't pick it up. But I'll never forget it. When I listened to the message in a very distinct voice, it was Jody this is Jeff Sessions. <laughs> Would you please call my cell phone? I never met Jeff Sessions. I didn't know Jeff Sessions, uh, but he was just gone through the confirmation hearings, was about to be confirmed attorney general, and to his credit, wanted somebody on his uh, staff. He had people from the Hill, but he didn't have anyone with DOJ experience, and he wanted somebody to be his chief of staff who had DOJ experience, and some people, me, I guess, because of my accent. So they <laughs> you know, so people assumed when I became his chief of staff that we knew each other for a long time. These are two Alabama guys, but we did not. And uh, so he asked me to breakfast the next morning and I met him for breakfast. He talked to me about being the chief of staff and I told him I would do it as long as I didn't have to give up my career position because I really loved my 
career job. He said, great, that's what I want to hear. And I said, I'll do it as long as I can help you. So I became his chief of staff. I literally sat down at my desk uh, two days before he was confirmed. And I, I was like, what's a chief of staff supposed to do? <laughs> it's a very different role for me. Um, a lot of issues early on in the administration. I don't know if we have a chance to talk about those or not, but a, a whole lot of things like the recusal issue and the Comey firing and the hiring of a, a, a special counsel and all those kinds of issues. Uh, but at some point while I was his chief of staff, um, they needed somebody to to lead the civil division, the Department of Justice. And because I had been in, a, in the civil division a long time, he came and asked me if I would be interested in that. And so, again, I never thought that that would happen. I didn't reach out for it. And I knew if I took that position, it would mean that I would have to leave my career slot. So I took that political position to lead the civil division. And I did that for two years. And I had great fun working with these people here. And who what kept do you do me now? out of trouble a lot. Well, actually, so you did a couple of things before you've landed where you are now. You, for instance, oh, yeah, were... Sure. Cassidy Hutchison's lawyer. Yeah, so so I when I left, um, I I left the Department of Justice in July of 2020, and um, I joined Alston and Bird, um, and I worked there for uh, almost three years, um, two and a half years. And while there, um, had the uh, honor to represent Cassidy Hutchinson, who some of you may know was one of the January 6 witnesses before the January 6 committee. Our, our, our firm represented uh, her pro bono um, in connection with that uh, those hearings in January 6th. She's now written a book called Enough. It's an interesting book. You should read it if you get a chance. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, and then um, another instance that I didn't, re- something I didn't reach out for, um, it just happened that um, I'm I'm now back at my alma mater, uh, Sanford University, as a general counsel in Birmingham. Uh, I've been there less than a year. I joined there in March of last year. Uh, the guy who was uh, the general counsel there before uh, I was, uh, he and I had clerked for the same judge, Judge Hancock in the Northern District. He was retiring from the position and he's my alma mater. I thought this is a great, at, at this point in my life and career, it's a great opportunity for me. So I'm learning a whole lot now about higher education and issues that come up in higher education that I never knew about. So that's sort of my arc of my career. couple notes on that. One, I feel like the Jody Hunt story is your accent can open doors, <laughs> even when you don't knock on those doors. Uh, very Alabama story. Uh, Two, yeah, for those who don't know, Fed programs at the Department of Justice is a little like when the CIA uh, has a sign out that says Department of Agriculture. Um, <laughs> like Fed programs is basically uh, the SG people listening are going to be mad, but it's sort of like the secret solicitor general's office in the Department of Justice. It has all those cases first, basically. And then the SG's office will take some of them down the line. Yes. Um but yeah, it's a gr- it, the Fed program's title tells you nothing about the fact that that's where any appellate nerd wants to go. Yeah, it's great. Really, the issues that you get there. So, so um, at federal programs branch, we would handle all of the cases in federal district courts all over the United States, no matter what jurisdiction they were in. We would decide whether we were going to handle the case or whether we would assign them to a U.S. attorney's office to handle. It's not doesn't work the same way on the criminal side of the house. 
but on the civil side, the civil division at DOJ decides, are we going to handle this or we're going to have the U.S. Attorney's Office handle it? So we get the first yeah. cut on that. There's some interesting stories about that, too, where <laughs> the Southern District of New York, which we call the Sovereign District of New York, would try to exercise its own jurisdiction as if it were somehow different than any other jurisdictions. There's a lot of great stories at some point I can tell you about. Yeah, and then we'll have a whole nother panel of just SDNY people telling you how much Maine justice sucks. Um, and then EDNY will tell you why SDNY actually sucks. And we'll have a whole DOJ throwdown. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today, Aura. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on your childhood memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. And to be clear, every mom in my life has this frame. Every mom I've ever heard of has this frame. This is my go-to gift. My parents love it. I upload photos all the time. I'm just like bored watching TV at the end of the night. I'll hop on the app and put up the photos from the day. It's really easy. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code advisory at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Um, all right, Prim, all I want to hear from you are war stories of putting the bad guys away. <laughs> um, Birmingham can be a murdery place. So in theory, you've got some really interesting cases. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, do you want my, want my background? Yes, yes. So, um, before I went to law school, after uh, graduated from undergrad in 2001, I went and worked in D.C. for um, Jeff Sessions. And I had the same job Stephen basically had, where I wrote a lot of letters. And so I was there for September 11th, um, anthrax, the Beltway Sniper, um, basically everything. Um, Chandra Levy? Chandra Levy apartment was right down from mine. So you can I got imagine. confused for Chandra Levy um, one day because I had really curly hair that summer and was out and around the hill. And I was like, yes, Chandra Levy's hiding on the hill where no one will see her. Yeah, my apartment was actually two apartments down from hers, but not apartment buildings, two apartment buildings down. So when my mom came to visit, she was like, why is there a yellow ribbon around that tree? And I was like, oh, well, that's where Chandra Levy lived. Um, Every mother wants to hear that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so I worked in D.C. for about four years, um, decided to come to law school, came back to Alabama and came to law school here. It was wonderful um, to be back here. I love law school. Um, and then after I graduated, I clerked for Judge Pryor on the 11th Circuit. Um, after that, I went to a law firm um, in Birmingham, Maynard Cooper at the time. And then from there, I got a call um, from the state AG who asked me to come be the deputy solicitor general for the state of Alabama. So I went down and did that for a stint. And then I got a call from Dean Randall at the time, um, who was the dean of the law school. And he asked me to come teach at the law school. So I did that for a time. 
Um, then I went back to private practice. And then in 2017, I got a call from then AG Sessions. Um, he said, I hear you would love to come work for me again. And I said, I sure would love to go work at Majestice. And so he was like, well, let's get out the book and see what all's available. Uh, <laughs> we went down the list together on the phone. And he, um, so I went up and worked in the Office of Legal Policy for a little while, um, where Stephen also was until his confirmation. And then Stephen went to be the AAG of um, OLA, Office of um, Legislative Affairs. And so I said, please take me with you. And so I went down and was the principal deputy, which is basically the number two. So you carry the briefcase um, and handled a lot of um, policy, but also did confirmations. So um, and hearings. So I was basically, if you look from that time of anybody who's testifying in front of Congress, um, Stephen and I are in the background. So we're the basically the B-roll um, of all of all of those major events. Um, and so I did that for about three and a half years. And then in July of 2020, um, then Attorney General Barr asked if I would like to go be the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. I said, sure. So I came down um, and took that job and was um, then court appointed in November of 2020. And so I've served in that role ever since. Will you explain a little bit why some U.S. attorneys are Senate confirmed and then leave at the end of an administration and why some are court appointed? Yes. And so, why you're still in the job, basically? <laughs> so um, traditionally, U.S. attorneys are what we call PAS. So presidentially appointed, Senate confirmed, um, which means that the president appoints them, um, nominates them, the Senate confirms them, and the president signs their commission and they're appointed. Um, those are political positions. And um, generally, at the end of an administration, those political positions turn over. Um, if someone vacates that position before um, the end of that administration, they can, the administration can nominate someone new to come in um, and be presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed. Someone who is currently in what's called the first assistant um, U.S. attorney role in the office can then move into an acting U.S. attorney role, or the attorney general can appoint someone to come in and be what is called an interim U.S. attorney. And so that interim U.S. attorney appointment lasts for a certain number of days. I believe it's 120 in a non-election um, year. And then at the end of that 120 days, the judges who sit on the district court for that district get to... Um, appoint who they would like to be the U.S. attorney. And so that is a court appointment. Um, and then that court appointment lasts until um, someone is nominated and confirmed through the presidentially um, nominated and confirmed. Waiting for a Humphreys executor challenge on this one, Jody. So I just, this made me think of a very interesting anecdote because from time to time, when new administrations come in, they decide, how are we going to get rid of the holdover U.S. attorneys who, you know, so we can make room for people that we want to put in those positions. And so that happens in, in most administrations, and it's sort of how you go about doing it. So the question arose when I was chief of staff to the attorney general early in the Trump administration, when they're considering what are the different paths to um, moving the U.S. attorneys out so we can put in people that we want in those positions. And um, so 
at one point, um, I, I got a call. We were in the middle of trying to decide this and I got a call from the White House counsel's office that says the president's decided that he wants to fire all of the U.S. attorneys and wants to do that today. It was almost lunchtime. <laughs> Jeff Sessions was in Alabama walking the timberlands with the Secret Service. And so I tr had to try to reach him to explain this directive we just had. To, I literally had to call the Secret Service guy. I had to get, get him in the woods and talk to him. Then I called to the deputy, the acting deputy attorney general's office and said, we have a mandate and we it has to be done today. They were all out at lunch together. So they had to come in from lunch. And then we had this process where we let all of the U.S. attorneys know that they were being let go that day. And, you know, getting the communication out and how you deal with public affairs and all. And I was also at lunch, by the way. <laughs> I was enjoying my lunch very much in Houston. My Tex-Mex finally... Nope, had to leave that lunch. So it's, it, so that afternoon, it just happened, it occurred to me, and I hadn't thought of it before, but um, uh, our boys were home for spring break, and um, they were headed back. That This was a Friday. It was a Friday. March the 10th, if I remember correctly, of 2017. It was a Friday, but um, I, I remember thinking, gee, I should have thought of this before. So I called back to the White House Counsel's office, and I said, you know, my boys are home. Could I get my family in to see the president um, this afternoon, possibly? And they're like, why don't you finish this U.S. attorney thing first and, and then we'll talk about it. And so later in the afternoon, I got a call and, and they said, come on over. And, and, uh, and it took a while to get everyone together to get over to the White House. And, and, and I, my phone was ringing before we got in there and says, where are you? The president's waiting on you. So we actually got in there and I showed him. I have a picture showing him the, one of the letters of one of the U.S. attorneys that we were firing. Um, I, and, and he's looking at the letter and reading it and nodding. And I won't tell you which letter it was, but I have that. <laughs> All right. So a debate between... David French uh, and me is that um, whether to go to law school. Now, you guys have already made this decision, but you haven't necessarily decided what's happening after. So I have generally taken the position that you should go to law school if you want to be a lawyer and if you know what that means. David has generally taken the position that law school opens doors. If you think it sounds fun, go for it. Figure the rest out later. I have retorted that that's how you end up a very unhappy big law associate alcoholic. Um, and David has said, look at all these people with non-traditional careers. They obviously came from somewhere, you know, race ipsa. So um, I will admit that this panel seems to be more David-esque than most. Well, but I, I, want, I want to ask each of you the question. Uh, you know, what is your recommendation? Where do you fall on that? Does law school just open all sorts of random doors or is there that sort of pressure to go into big law? And by big law, I don't even necessarily mean AMLAW 100. I mean, a practicing associate attorney in civil litigation or the equivalent in tax or whatever those other practice areas are. Um, it's not antitrust. That's made up as we know. But uh, where do you fall on that, Stephen? Well, I think, and I, you know, talk to a lot of folks who are considering going to law school, try to be helpful, mentor to the extent I can. 
And my answer has been the same forever, which is you just have to have a business plan. Like it has to make sense for you. There has to be some idea about what happens next and what's it cost and are there loans involved and all these sorts of decisions. And you should also know, that's what I would tell anybody who's making a decision, like find a way to actually talk to a lawyer about what they do every day because it's not, you know, law and order. Jack McCoy. Um, necessarily. You know, we got off the plane. You were behind me, and so you didn't see this, but they had the ad up for the last Jack McCoy episode of Law & Order. It's going to be a, 400 episodes with Jack McCoy. It'll be a big deal for you. It will be, yeah. yeah. End of an era, literally. Um, so I, I just think you have to think through it. I mean, and it's a little weird coming from me because I'm the one who has the probably least traditional sort of route. There are other ways to do it. My first day here, I remember an orientation. We were in the big rooms down the hallway. Uh, and the dean stood up and he, and he said, you know, raise your hand if you think you are not going to practice law. And of the couple hundred, 300, whatever, how many people it was, like two people raised their hand. Were you one of them? No. Is that because you I thought they were, raise your hand? You're not a hand raiser. I'm not a hand raiser, but no. Uh, <laughs> I thought, why are you here? If you, and, and the answer was, they had their reasons. But um, point being, most people, and I think most law schools, think they're training litigators and lawyers and attorneys. And, and that's what it's designed to do. Uh, the idea you just go to law school because it seems like the good next thing to do, or you just don't have any other great plan for your life. That's a bad idea. Did you need to go to law school? Well, I wouldn't know any of y'all if I didn't, because I wouldn't have gone to the Department of Justice. I mean, I'm super glad I did. And, and once in that job, although we were not you know, trying cases, um, to survive in that world, you had to have the understanding of what was going on. So yeah. yes. I did think I um I don't think there has been a Department of Justice senior leadership team where the head of uh ledge affairs and the head of public affairs were both attorneys. Um Barbara Comstock was the last attorney to hold the public affairs spot. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of who was ledge affairs uh, September 11th. Um but anyway, that's all to say I thought it was incredibly helpful for both of us to have yeah, law degrees because I think whereas normally uh people in the department will try to law talk over the people without law degrees. Right. Um, we were sort of like, no, no, please tell me the citation again. Like, right. <laughs> um, obviously you needed a law degree. That's not the question. But when you're giving advice to people, you didn't know you'd end up in this job. I know. I went to law school to not practice law. Oh, you're one of the hand raisers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't raise my hand, but <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I was working in D.C. doing policy, and I worked for Jeff Sessions, like I said, and he would say, I, I moved up and became a legislative assistant, um, and I handled health care and education and labor and pensions on the committee. And so he would have all of his legislative assistants lined up, and he would say, this is Arch Galloway, and he was an Army Ranger and well-decorated, and this person is an environmental engineer who has like a Ph.D., and this person is a lawyer and this person is a doctor. And he was like, and then here's Prim. She graduated first of her class from Wetumpka High School. <laughs> um, and that's how he would introduce me in, <laughs> at every um, meeting with constituents. And so I had done that for four years and I thought, gee, I probably need to credential myself. Not that there's anything wrong with Wetumpka High School. It was a great place. Um, but I probably need to credential myself a little bit. So I went to law school with the idea that I would get credentialed and I would go back to DC. Um, and in fact, I applied to Georgetown and even considered going at night um, so that I could continue working 
um, for Senator Sessions. But when I came here for my visit, um, Carol Andrews, who is the pro um, professor here, was like, well, that's a stupid idea and you can't do that. So you have to go full time. She was like, and you'll come here. OK, um, but I fully intended to graduate and go back to D.C. and have a non-legal career. What's your favorite job out of all the ones you've had? My favorite job I've ever done? No, of, of the post-law school job. Um, oh, gosh. I've loved every job for different reasons. I'm one of the weird people that I loved law school and I loved practicing law. I liked being in a firm. I liked being at the um, deputy SG. Um, I liked teaching. Um, but I think my favorite job was probably in the Office of Legislative Affairs. Um, I tell the story that when I... I went to Wetumpka High School um, and was from a small town. And that was you know, back in the 90s. And even then, we couldn't have backpacks that were um, solid. You had to have a mesh backpack for security reasons. And so I can still remember going to college and being on the quad. And I had um, my first L.L. Bean backpack, which was what you wanted back then. And I remember walking across the quad of college and thinking, like, this is the coolest thing. Like, it will never be cooler than the fact that I'm at college walking across the quad with this backpack. Um, and the second time that I felt that was when I walked in the doors of Maine Justice. Um, and that's true regardless of the administration you work for. I've now worked for two administrations. I've worked for three attorneys general. Um, and just across the board, being able to work for the Department of Justice um, and do the mission of that office um, in ledge affairs, it was amazing. Um, the job I have now is such an honor and a privilege. And so I have to say that like working at the department is probably my favorite job. All right, Jody, someone asked you, should I go to law school? You say? I say absolutely, because it opens a lot of doors for you. <laughs> <laughs> and you heard me say that when I was sort of giving you the, because yeah. I had not re I had not planned to do that. As I mentioned, it was net. I, I didn't want to go to law school, actually. But the person who was talking to me was making sense and said, you know, it, it does open doors. And so that that led to all these things happening in my life and my career that otherwise wouldn't have happened. So I'm and I and I pinch myself a lot because I I feel so fortunate to have had many, many great, you know, opportunities in my career that are things that just happen to come my way. What's fascinating in your career trajectory is you've actually had the most traditional legal career in a lot of ways. Set aside the chief of staff blip, if you will. Um, did you enjoy private law practice? Not as much as I enjoyed being at DOJ. Yeah. Not, not, because I didn't like the business side of it. And I'm not, I'm not knocking it because, um, it, you know, it's important. It's a, it's a, it's a business and a lot of people are good at it, but, um, I didn't like the business aspect of the private practice. And I enjoyed a lot of the matters that I got to work on. I mean, when I first, the first job that I had, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of talk back when I, I don't know if they still do this, but talk about associates going to make big law firms and doing a lot of document discovery. Well, there is that, but you know, I got to do some fascinating things. I got to work on, you know, claims against Iraq arising out of the, the Gulf war and, you know, traveled to Saudi Arabia and to Turkey and, you know, conduct investigations and put arbitration claims together. So that was really fascinating uh, stuff. I did class action stuff in another uh, life at, at a different firm. Um, so I had, I thought I had interesting things, that, you know, that I got to work on. I did some big tobacco stuff that 
No, uh, I never imagined getting to do, but it's just funny for a guy who thought it was about opening doors. Like the door that opened was in some ways the most traditional path, even to get to the department of justice, right? Go to white and case, go to King and Spalding, right. End up at the department of justice. I ended up, I read, and now you're a GC. And and, right, exactly. You're right. I took a very, you know, I didn't, I did do, I did practice law, even though I never planned to do it. So Okay, next set of questions before we open this up to the audience, perhaps. I want to shift uh, a little bit to the personal side. Boyd, you've had a series of um, high-profile jobs, high-stress jobs. You and Breck are, you know, just two of my favorite people. Any relationship advice of how you find work-life balance with high-profile, high-stress jobs while maintaining a marriage to a woman who is so out of your league? Totally out of my league. Absolutely. Um, Well, you know, generally speaking, um, we've been on the same page about that uh, as we've through our marriage. Uh, I think communication is in any relationship is the key and where we've, I think, done well about this is where we've had good communication and when there have been times where it's been rougher it's because communication wasn't as good that's probably just seems a little over simple but and when you say communication like setting expectations like hey just so you know for the next 18 months i'm not gonna be home for dinner and i'm not gonna see you much or communication like i love you yeah both okay yeah both and also like hey you know going to this you know, family event is really important to me. So make it happen. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking you to do it every time. But this time, make it happen. Stuff like that. Um, I think, you know, for the most part, uh, it's, it's been fine. Uh, there were days at DOJ where the days were really stressful and really long. And probably in a, like a self-defense way, you know, I, my way of dealing with it was to like kind of pretend it wasn't happening. You know, just like do the mission and get it done. And that's that. And over time, do you mind if I tell the story? You were living on the hill at the time, and you would come out to your car, and it would be broken into. Nothing would be taken, and there'd be like a knife on the front seat as we're working on the Russia investigation. For yeah, instance. there was definitely some harassment that occurred. And one time, I came home, and all the wires to our house had been cut. That's weird, and you know, that's when you take off your like work hat and be like how does my wife feel about living in this situation? You know, uh, she's a trooper. She's amazing. And, uh, we got through all that, but you know, I think, I think if you're going to go and maybe the, the kind of analog is big law firm, a lot of hours, it's really important to you. If, if you can communicate about why it's important and how long it's going to last and why you're doing it at this point in your life, that's going to help you out a lot. What you don't want in, uh, in any relationship, particularly with a spouse or a significant other, is you know built up resentment. Because if you're doing your thing and you're at the firm and you're making a bunch of money, and uh, you know you're you think you're doing everything right, but you're the most important person in your life is at home or doing something else, and they're getting resentful about it, you know that's not a good situation. Um, I'm I'm really happy to say that I don't think it was a problem for us, but I've seen that happen, you know, um, and you know. You can't you can't do those sort of jobs without having a completely supportive and amazing person with you. I was lucky in that respect. Prim, you have long been a mom role model for me. Um, you have young children. I now that I have young children, I have no clue how you've done any of this. 
particularly when we were at DOJ, but even now. I'm curious what advice you have for me now that I'm drowning. <laughs> so, um, We've all been leading up to this moment, by the way. This entire panel was just for me to get to ask Prim this question. Um, so for everyone's information, I have four children. Um, they're all girls. They range in age from my oldest is 11 and my youngest is one. So I have an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 4-year-old, and a 1-year-old. Um, and I had my 4-year-old when I was working in D.C. Um, at OLA, in fact, it was um, AG Barr was confirmed on February 14th, 2019. And my four-year-old was born on March 7th, 2019. So I was very pregnant um, during that entire process. Um, and then I was, I had my youngest child while I was the U.S. attorney. So um, I think Stephen's right. You have to have a really good partner. I have an amazing husband who is flexible and willing um, to help out on a lot of that. I outsource a lot of things that you can outsource. Um, and, you know, try to focus on what's important at the moment and try to make that matter. So is my house clean? Absolutely not. Looks like the crime scene occurred. Um, did I spend time with each of my children every day? Yes. Um, also, I think it's really important that not just your partner, your spouse, is on board, but the, the people you work with are on board. Um, I work with amazing people now. We're a very fr family-friendly office. Um, and if they need to deal with an issue at home, I support that. They support me when I have to do that. Um, when I was in D.C., it was long hours. It was a very family-friendly office there, too. Um, I recall one time I was at home with the baby um, at night, it was like nine o'clock at night and Stephen needed something. And so he was calling. And so I was on the phone with him and I had the baby on my hip and she started like babbling. And then his, I think you had your phone and speaker because your dog started barking in the background. <laughs> so the baby and the dog were talking to each other while we were trying to have a work conversation. Um, but the more you can just be upfront with the people you work with um, and set expectations, to me, that's the best. I've always had a a ton of support in that. And Jody, you have three grown children yeah. who have watched uh, all of these parts of your career, but they were fully able to read newspapers, for instance, when you're chief of staff at the Department of Justice, uh, when you're going through Senate confirmation, when you're representing Cassidy Hutchison. I'm curious how you talk to your kids about that sort of thing. Um, and how you set an example for them through your work, how you think about that, I guess, as a, you know, <laughs> Prim and I are sort of, I think, still in the like throes of the like small people, small problems. You're kind of in the big people, big problems. So I hope that I set some good examples for my children. I think I was thinking about your initial question. I think my wife would probably say, my wife, Lori, and McKenna's here, my daughter, she can vouch for, would probably say, you never really reached that good work-life balance. <laughs> uh, you know, for a time, you know, when I was at a firm um, in Atlanta, I remember that she was referred to, Lori was referred to as the work widow because I was gone all the time. Monday through Friday, I was in a different city working on a case full time. And I would be in Atlanta. I would fly in Friday night and I would leave on Sunday afternoon. 
And she had a daughter and toddler twins. She had at the time we had twin sons, and uh, you know we had no family support mechanism there. Uh, and and but she did she, she did manage to you know play alto. This is a big thing in Atlanta. Alto tennis. Uh, you know every every neighborhood has its own tennis, and she never played tennis. And so she hired a, a, a Swedish tennis star, a guy named Pear. And, you know, everybody's like, hey, you know, she's getting really good at good tennis. <laughs> <laughs> so I think she would say, I never, I never um, achieved that balance. Even at DOJ, like the job I had at Fed Programs, you know, we had Blackberries back then. And the thing was, it would go off constantly because we're dealing with emergencies, TROs and, um, you know, things like temporary just, restraining order for our listeners. Yeah. So, so an example, you know, we were getting ready to go to dinner one night and we had planned with friends in Georgetown. And uh, I was in the shower, got a phone call that somebody was trying to stop the execution of Saddam Hussein. So like I spent the whole like trying to get ready, riding in the car, go down to dinner and everybody's sitting there and I go outside and I'm on the phone trying to talk to our attorneys about how we're going to handle this challenge. So it was constant. I don't, my wife was so wonderful. Like, uh, you know, and I did try to make the kids, you know, events that they had. McKenna was a gymnast. Lori homeschooled her for a while, you know, because of the gymnastics schedule. And then, uh, you know, I would try to get to, to, I would try to find a way to schedule if they had a sporting event to go to, I would go to it, even if it meant I had to go back to the office to finish up whatever I was doing, because I didn't want to be the one who just didn't make the events. But I'm sure there's a lot of ways that my wife, if she were here, would tell you that I could have been a better, set a better example than I actually did. Uh, but it is it is difficult. You have to sort of find a way to make it work. And as as moms who are, you know, you you face it too with your work and, and being a parent and You've got the same issues trying to do manage it all. It's not easy. Mostly the house just stays a mess, right? Yeah, that's the first thing to go. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply all right let's open up to questions from you guys um, who wants to go first? It's always hard to be the first questioner. Yes. Well, you each spoke very fondly of your time at Maine DOJ. Um, I guess I'm wondering if you got the right offer 
would each of you go back under a second Trump presidency? Boyd, you were just quoted in a Bloomberg story about this. So why don't you take that? <laughs> for me personally, no. I have a lot of respect for people who do want to go back. And I, I think there are different rationales for that and reasons. Um, and many of them are good. And um, my, my own personal assessment is that it's, it's just not something that I could do. You know, I think this is a really tough question in some sense because it goes to this philosophical idea of like, well, we want good people in government, but also how much should you disagree with the president and still serve as a political appointee, for instance? And how should people treat people who serve in an administration that they don't agree with, but they wanted good people to serve in government? And it ends up being a question that I don't think enough people struggle with, particularly partisans, um, as they sort of want to vilify the other side. But then they also want, you know, someone like a Jody Hahn, who served in a bunch of career positions, to be that person at the front office of the Department of Justice, who's been working at the department for decades and really knows how it works. Would you rather have a political hack in that position? Um, and I wish people would publicly struggle more with that for sort of first principles philosophical question rather than the knee jerk. They worked for the other administration and I hate them or uh, nobody should go into a second Trump administration or everybody should go into a second Trump administration and realize some of those trade-offs. Um, I'm not going to ask you, I can't ask you that question. And I'm not going to ask Jody because he likes his job. Uh, next question. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, just I would, can I just make a comment on this without, if, I'm not going to ask me that question, but um, there is a distinction that's been made uh, between career officials and political positions. And, you know, the vast majority of people at Maine DOJ are career officials. There's been a lot m made in recent years since the last administration and now about the so-called deep state. I have a lot of views about that because what I witnessed over the course of more than two decades at the Department of Justice and not just people at the Department of Justice, but working with closely with people in all the executive branch agencies because the DOJ litigates for them. They can't litigate for themselves. So we work with them in deciding what's the position of the United States in litigation. I worked with a lot of career officials over 20 years. And this notion of a deep state that's out to ruin a president is flat wrong. Are there bad apples? It's sure. In any organization, and you can turn that into, uh, you know, oh, the, the place is corrupt and evil and they're set out to get, that is just wrong. There are people that's it's true in any organization, but the vast majority of people there I've seen work very hard to take principled positions across administrations. I saw it. I defended things that I didn't agree with because that was my job uh, as a career official. And uh, but you raise a very good question and an interesting one. If you're going back, if somebody going back in in a political position, having served there, I think you'll see a lot of people who've been out there publicly saying they would not having been in those positions. But I just want to make that distinction between career and political. 
To be clear, my answer is also no. Yes. I kind of want to follow up on that. So there's a good chance Chevron deference might be on the chopping block or very heavily limited. I guess I kind of want to know what's your opinion and anyone else's opinion on that possibility with reflection to the larger administrative state. Yeah, and Sarah probably is um, probably got the best insight on that. Following following the issue closely, probably more closely than I have, just because I'm in a new role, learning a job. I think they're likely to modify Chevron Chevron deference. I think it will not be what we've seen, and uh, and and then there and then the. It, How uh, would it have changed your job at Fed programs to not have Chevron to lean back on? And Chevron, uh, for those listening at home. And we had a long episode explaining Chevron deference and our deference and the history. And it was super fun, actually, Uh, for me. I don't know about for any listener, but definitely for me. Um, But largely speaking, it's the idea that the courts will defer to the agency about what the statute in question says including if the agency changes its mind, basically, et cetera. So the agency, in some sense, gets to determine the expanse of its own power. So if they got rid of that sort of thumb on the scale for the agency to define its own power, how would that have changed your job at Fed programs where you were defending executive branch agency power? Yes, it would have changed it significantly. It would have made it much more difficult to defend a lot of the challenges that we had because we're cha- we're defending challenges to federal programs. And a lot of what we depended on was arguing Chevron deference to the views of the um, executive branch agencies. I'm not, I'm not here to argue that, 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 that doctrine should remain or should not. I'm just saying it would have made our, it would have made the job much more difficult. I think it, um, we wouldn't have been able to rely as heavily as we did on executive branch determinations. This might be an interesting question. We can, all of y'all have attended law schools and Sarah, I know you've traveled around the country and seen different law schools, but also that whether it is daughter who is now attending law school or even working in a law school at some fashion. How have y'all seen kind of the law school itself change over those several years and whether that is kind of how they are guiding their students versus when they were guiding y'all? And how would you say that should reflect on your question that you constantly ask on these different podcasts of should you attend law school now versus say, for example, the question could be, would you attend law school now versus and you chose to going into law school. Prim, what do you think? How has law school changed? You were a professor yeah, and a student. Hadn't changed much because this is exactly what this room looked like. <laughs> um, but I think from a student perspective, I don't know that it's changed a ton. I think that you actually have more um, opportunities And you know more going in about what you might do after. I think when I was going through, it really was almost everybody was there to go work at a firm or go be in a DA's office. And I think now people kind of come to law school for probably a variety, or at least come to Alabama for a variety of different um, career reasons. From a professor's standpoint, um, it was very difficult for me to come back as a professor having been at a law firm and seeing what the expectations law students had about what their life would look like after law school and me knowing what your life actually would look like (laughs) after law school. Um, I can remember 
And I take criticism very, very well. And so when I got my, you know, you do your reviews for your professors. And one of the criticisms that I got was she sends too many emails. And so I would send an email before class, everyone in my class is saying, this is what I'm going to ask you in class so that everyone can be prepared. So you would know this is what you should come prepared for. And um, I thought that was very helpful, would be very helpful. Um, and apparently the law students thought that was just too many emails. And my response was, I appreciate that feedback. But when you get to a law firm, you wake up and you've got 30 emails from partners telling you to do stuff. And I just thought, gosh, I just don't know if we're actually preparing law students for what their jobs are going to look like after law school. I'll tell you my biggest concern traveling, and I've said this about working on the Hill, I've said it about working in political campaigns, but it's also been true in my experience in law school. It was considered uh, something to brag about that I was friends with people who were leading liberal student organizations when I was the head of the Federalist Society. And I very much fear that for the same reason that that's something you uh, no longer would brag about in your sort of social life on the Hill, um, that it's also something that law students don't really want to do anymore. I actually believe that that's not nearly the problem at Alabama that it is at other law schools. And I think there's a reason for that. I think you guys have a critical mass of enough people with different uh, ideological values and interests that nobody feels that self-censorship and group hegemony, I guess. But I think at a lot of law schools, um, it creates a sense of self-censorship from the majority. And then for the minority, almost a need to sort of take on a trolling personality because they're so socially ostracized for being in the minority um, in whatever that is. And I think it's bad when, uh, frankly, it's a minority on the far left, because I think that happens as well. And I think we spend a lot of time talking about it happening on the right. But just like, I mean, you, if you talk to people on the far left about DC or about the media, they'll tell you, of course, that the media has a conservative bias. They don't quite mean it that way, but they mean there's a conservative small C bias oftentimes, which there is, right? Like they're treated as the fringe and they are on that sort of ideological spectrum, but a healthy law school atmosphere, people would be bragging about how they have friends in the Federalist Society and the prison abolition club mm -hmm. and everything <laughs> in between those two. Um, and I think to the extent y'all don't appreciate that here, you should, because I think you have a pretty healthy climate um, that some other law schools don't. I'll tell you how law schools changed. Prim just talked about emails. <laughs> All right, Boomer. <laughs> when I was in law school, there's no such thing as an email. There were no cell phones. I don't even know how we <laughs> we did, but you know uh, that's how it's. I don't really think as a fundamental matter. I mean, I don't know because I'm not in school, but you know, just talking to my daughter about law school, you, know, you guys are doing the same things we did. You're reading a ton and you're working on outlines, <laughs> right? Putting together outlines and that sort of stuff. That I think a, a lot of that, a lot of the fundamentals of law school remain the same. Law school 
to whether or not you go to law school, right? Law school does not teach you necessarily to go practice law. You don't show up your first day at the firm or at the U.S. Attorney's Office or at the DA's and you're like, well, I am Perry Mason or Jack McCoy and I am here to, you know, I know everything about whatever this case is that's landed on my desk. Law school teaches you how to think analytically and it teaches you how to look at a problem and think through that problem. And so that is, the, I think, the big benefit of going to law school. And if you can kind of take that away from law school and work on that while you're in law school, to Sarah's point, talking to other people, working through disagreements, working through different points of view, then you're learning skills that are actually going to serve you much better than if you book, you know, constitutional law or whatever it is. As Rachel Brand said, who also worked with us at the Department of Justice, who's the one person I think of the senior staff that I haven't had on this podcast. We've Mm had uh, Rod Rosenstein, Ed O'Callaghan, but yeah, Rachel, who was the Associate Attorney General, I've quoted her a lot though, so I feel like she's been on. Um, She just spoke at the National Cathedral uh, this week on a panel on civility, talking about the commencement address that she gave at George Mason Law School earlier this year about this very topic. And one of the great quotes from that was, right, iron sharpens iron. Like, go find the iron in your class that is going to sharpen you. And I promise you, it won't be someone who agrees with you. Like, and the more they can disagree with you, the more they're going to sharpen you and you're going to sharpen them. Um, And that's actually what you should be looking for. But to to that point, what, if you have an environment where in the the school, you've, you've gotten these kind of tribal aspects to a left, left, right, this aisle, side aisle, that side aisle. You know, what do, What can the school do to fix that problem? And I think I agree with what you just said, and Rachel, very wise as always, uh, pointed that out. But what can the school do, the, the leadership, the administration, to try to create a situation where uh, those, those relationships and communications occur because ultimately those are rewarding and make you test your own belief system? I'm curious if y'all have thoughts. I mean, I, I do think there's a few things. One is just modeling the behavior, right? At some schools, it's impossible for the Federalist Society, for instance, to find a faculty advisor or to find faculty that are willing to speak at events. The Federalist Society likes to have debates, so they invite in a conservative speaker and then they want a liberal faculty member to engage with that conservative speaker and the, uh, the liberal faculty will not participate in that. And I think that's a shame because I think that would be a way to model um, disagreement, not in a debate, but in a discourse. Um, so I think that's a shame. And of course, I've said this before, but I think the whole admissions policy is set up to actually create unhealthy environments. Because if your admission system looks for the most activist students to bring to campus, those people are going to be so sure of their beliefs, they're not interested in sharpening their own iron so to speak, because they already know what they believe and they're not curious. And so you could change an admission system to instead put a thumb on the scale for curiosity and open-mindedness and an interest in civil discourse instead of activism and leadership and these things that I think we see as good words, but they're not necessarily, especially not at 22. I I agree with that. I also think that law schools are still too fixated on numbers in terms of you know their medians and things and they don't actually they they say they take holistic approaches to admissions processes but i have serious reservations about that i'll just add 
my two cents. You can edit that out if you want to, but I, 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 they're, they're fixated on it. And in part, you know, too, the U.S. News and World Report is changing. It's just, I'm getting off subject, but the, the, they changed their methodology so that it sort of paralyzes schools about, you know, how they're going to be ranked. And so there's a, there's still a major emphasis on like standardized test scores and GPAs as opposed to other things that, as you're talking about, they could look for to sort of make sure that they're getting, you know, variety and diversity of students. Lightning round, you know, like. <laughs> well, I had a I had a comment before a question. Uh, I wanted to ad- address something that you said back in December that I heard you've been given a little bit of grief for already. Uh, but when talking about <laughs> Florida State being snubbed in the college football playoff. <laughs> Uh, you said it should be deserving. You guys are just wrong. That sounds like some judicial living constitutionalism, if I've ever heard of it. Well, the college football playoff website, uh, under the question, what is the mission of the college football playoff selection committee says the selection committee's task is to select the 25 best teams in college football and rank the teams for inclusion in the playoff. And then when the college football playoff executive director, Bill Hancock was asked about that, he said, I appreciate your asking that question. It is best. Most deserving is not something in the committee's lexicon. So, uh, I think the selection committee, uh, took the best textualist approach to selecting, uh, teams for the college football playoff. Interesting. I think um, we could spend some time going through the text history and tradition of the word best as it was used at the time that those rules were passed. But most importantly, I think you should take from this that even though I was already scheduled to speak at Alabama, knew that I would be here, I did not pander to you and insult your intelligence by giving a fake opinion just to please you uh, and your football powerhouse. Um, Honestly, y'all should be so Great. I mean, you should have paid Nick Saban more for what has happened at this school uh, since his tenure. And it has just skyrocketed in terms of the quality of students that y'all get. I mean, look who used to go to this school. They're on this panel. And now look at y'all here in this audience. Um, so obviously football has done well for Alabama. No one denies that. But how can best not mean undefeated, sir? It just doesn't. And with that, thank you guys all so much for coming to this live podcast. Thank you to the University of Alabama. And thank you to the Federal Society for hosting us. Such a treat to be here with you guys. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.